Hi, and welcome to our series, Words to Live By. It's an opportunity for you to get to know one of our pastors today and how God's Word has impacted their life. Uh, today, we're going to have as our guest, youth pastor Nathan Archer. Nathan, welcome. And you know, the youth know you, some of the parents know you. This is great, though, for our, our whole church family and others beyond that, just to find out a little bit about uh, what made you what you are today, what makes you tick. So let's go all the way back to your childhood. Tell us about the birth canal and how that was for you. The and, birth canal, uh, yeah. My memory of it is limited. Okay. I, I don't know if that's everyone's experience, but I, I don't have much, much experience. Well, let's graduate to childhood. Graduate was, to childhood. Where, where'd you grow up and what did that look like? Yeah, so I, I'm a pastor's kid, so we did a little bit of moving. I was born in a small town of Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. um, lived there for all of six weeks. So I have about as much memory of Weyburn as I do of the birth canal. Mm -hmm. um, and then we moved to Medicine Hat for eight years. My dad was pastoring a church there. Moved to a little, not even big enough to be called a village, the hamlet of Cremona in Alberta. It's hour outside of Calgary. I okay. mean, I'm just throwing out names. I could be naming places like Eyebrow, Saskatchewan, <laughs> like, which is literally a place, by the way. Eyebrow, Saskatchewan, look it up. Wow. Um, yeah, so eventually we, we settled I would say settled, and where I grew up in was Didsbury, Alberta. Okay. Um, moved there when I was 10, and that's where I would say I started to, started to discover who I was. Um, mm -hmm. I stepped into my first youth group experience there. Mm -hmm. That was uh, in grade 12 was where I encountered Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would, that's, that to me still feels like home. Even if, even if my parents were to one day move away, I would still feel like Didsbury okay. would be where I grew up. So do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah. Where, where in the birth order did you fit? I am the youngest of three, though I tried to live as if I wasn't. I wanted to pave my own path. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so my oldest brother, he's or my only brother, he's the oldest, 30 years old, and my mm -hmm. sister, 28, Jen uh, and Kyle. Jen was married in 2016 to James, uh, and okay. I was her man of honor, I suppose you could say. So okay. I stood beside her, held flowers, was supposed to nice. fix her dress, but I never okay. never really was able to do that. Mm. And then when I got married just a couple months ago, um, she was also the one standing up oh, beside me. Oh, that's really me. cool. So yeah. you're pretty close, obviously. Yeah, quite close. What yeah. was your favorite thing to do growing up? What did you gravitate towards? Yeah, well, I, I brought a basketball, uh, mm -hmm. which I didn't realize was my favorite thing to do probably till high school. Okay. Uh, and and what, my, uh, what my mom, used to tell me was that if it wasn't for basketball, I would be one of the most lazy human beings alive. Because I would just cruise through school, like mm -hmm. kind of didn't really want to put effort into things. Right. But basketball was finally something that I would like commit myself to. And I would get up early in the morning to get up shots cool. and get to the gym. So. so that helped shape you. Yeah, definitely. All right. And so then graduating from high school. Yeah. Uh, Career path, education, sort yeah. of what happened after that. So I followed the pursuit of basketball, actually, and wanted to go to a Christian school. So I went to Briarcrest in Saskatchewan, where our executive pastor, Rod Adrian, just, ah, so, yes. happened, just so happened to be the coach at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. Through a variety of events, all of a sudden, all my passion for basketball in a couple of weeks was just gone. Like, Is that because of Rod? Or? Yeah, he quickly did it. I mean, uh, maybe another time I'll be able to launch into this story, but in essence, uh, my family experienced what was trauma at the time, and then four or five years later, a mountain in Israel was the healing moment. This was actually a story that I thought I was gonna to share today, but there's something actually that I thought was closer to my heart. So we'll save that for another time. Can't but um, what that did was during my time at Briarcrest, I was mostly just there to play basketball. Mm -hmm. That was stripped away, and right. so, so much of who I was at that point was also stripped away. Mm. 
And it was a season for me to say, what is most important to me? And I actually didn't know, even to the point of graduating, um, I think if you were to look at my path in retrospect, it seems like a very neat and tidy graduate high school, go to Bible college, right. do an internship at a church, start as a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. But I finished at Briarcrest and I still didn't even know if I wanted to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. I, I knew, I learned in my first year that I loved Jesus mm -hmm. and I loved people. Yeah. And I wanted those two things to be together. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I just kind of let that sort of lead um, mm -hmm entered a Christian ministry program because it seemed like this is a great place to have yeah. two things, those yeah. two things go together. And yeah, it looked different along the way. I actually at one point thought I was going to be an English professor mm -hmm. and here I am. So, so very, very different path than I had originally thought, yeah. but more and more just through finishing Briarcrest and then eventually going to an internship at Willingdon Church in Burnaby. Mm -hmm. And now here, I just feel more and more called to the local church for sure, mm -hmm. but Sarah and I, Sarah being my wife, we just have this huge heart for urban centers in particular. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. places that are incredibly post-Christian, secular, right. intellectual on one hand, but also very multicultural and diverse. Mm -hmm. And then if I had a third hand, I would also add in there, uh, just like also very close proximity to vulnerable people groups, mm -hmm. whether kids, refugees, right. homeless. Like, mm -hmm. So urban centers have this like really close place to our heart. Mm -hmm. And we're still discovering more than that. That's yeah. just kind of where we know on the journey right yeah. now. It'll be neat to see how that all plays out. Yeah. 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 Um, so this is your first experience as a youth pastor yes. and being a pastor on staff. Um, what would you say has been one or two highlights of, of doing that? Yeah. I mean, interesting experience because before I even got through my first year, that's when COVID happened. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but so I would say two things. First one, I just remember being blown away specifically by the team of volunteers that had been built mm. up here. So mm. um, I have never been a youth pastor before, but I mean, grew up in a youth group and mm. have been part of camp experiences, Willingdon Church, popped into other churches. And I just remember like saying to Sarah after I'd been here at first, like, Sarah, like I can't even wrap my head around how incredible this team is. And then mm. she later came too. It's like, Nathan, I can't even wrap my head around mm. like how incredible this team is. So that's just like to be able to have that also become like our core community in many ways to, yeah. to walk alongside these people has been such a huge encouragement and blessing. And then I would say in a strange sort of way, as much as I mentioned COVID, um, it's been an incredibly fun and draining opportunity to just like experiment and, and mm. play and, and see ultimately at the end of the day, we're here to see students be transformed by the reality of Jesus. Mm. And it's so cool to see ways that students lean in that we would have never thought to even attempt before COVID. Right. Yeah. It's just like, it's been a lot of fun to mm. flex some muscles that I don't know if I'd ever been able to flex mm. before. That's really great. Yeah. Now I know some people are gonna want to know a little bit about, well, Sarah, tell us a little bit more. How did you guys meet and how did that develop? And How's it going as a newly married going? man? Two months in, we're still together, so that's saying something. Um, we met during my internship at Willingdon Church. She grew up at Willingdon Church there. Uh, one of my pickup lines was. Uh, so you this had a pickup line? I don't even. I don't know. I don't know if you can call it a pickup line, but it, it basically uh, Sarah's dad's cousin. Okay, it's connection. Mm -hmm. Sarah's dad's cousin, named Colleen, um, passed away something like thirty-five years ago, um, but. Just before she passed away, she was actually married for a few months to a guy named Brian Archer, who happens to be my dad. Mm. So the connection was, hey, I think my dad was at one point married to your dad's cousin. 
Um, of course, my dad is now remarried and yeah. has yeah. like that. I he has had three kids. So that was the way to connect. That was the way to connect. Wow. You know, it, it worked. That's, so that's, I, that's all I can say. That's really out there, Nathan. <laughs> but sure enough, it worked. No, Sarah yeah. is. Um, she is in many ways lots of things that I'm not. She is organized and adventurous and playful mm. and super spontaneous. And I come being like very system oriented mm. and I can be very contemplative and just like mm -hmm. satisfied to like be at home. All so, right. Yeah. So you're great for each other. Yes. That's fantastic. Uh, at some point, um, I mean, you were raised in a Christian home, but I think often even in that environment, we have these moments in our life where it's just like lights go on and Jesus becomes more real or significant in our lives. Was there a time like that for you? Yeah, I actually remember the specific day that it mm. happened because uh, I had gone through high school just with an increasing awareness that I could not wrap my mind around God. And so as much as I wanted to believe in him, I just mm. knew that I didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I knew that after I was going to graduate high school, as much as I didn't want this to be the case, that I would just walk away from my faith. Wow. Uh, so it was November 17th, 2013, that I just remember all of a sudden I was kneeling by my bed before, like, like at night and like thumbing through pages. And I just remember like, opening up my Bible at that time and just like being flooded with the presence of God. Like there's mm -hmm. songs we sing about whether being washed white as snow or something mm -hmm. along those lines that as I sing that, like that is the moment I think of. Mm -hmm. And it was just this like this instant moment of knowing I would never be the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that's not everyone's experience to have that sort of like transformative yeah. event. Yeah. Um, but it's been interesting that part of my journey has been where previously I had so much doubt about who God was. As much as I have plenty of other things that I wrestle with, mm -hmm. doubt thus far has not been one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm also not so naive as, as to think that, that it would never come back. But right. it's just been this space of like going from zero confidence to just like full confidence mm -hmm. in the reality of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That sounds like so much like grace, yeah. doesn't it? Definitely. Oh, that's beautiful. Hey, we're really excited to have you share with us, you know, a verse that's impacted you, because I think it's going to impact us as you share it. But before you do, I mean, we, ha we have to ask some really deep questions. So um, who's your barber? <laughs> I, uh, I had a rough go with him at first. He, he, cut, he cut me quite a few times. <laughs> first time I shaved my head. Oh, man. I, I literally have scars on my head. If you were to zoom oh, in enough, no. you could get them. But, so were you trying to be like Rod, or was the, what made this decision, Nathan? Uh, my father and my genetics. <laughs> I was left with no choice. And event I just basically gave it to Sarah and said, like, whenever you're ready for it to go, it's time to go. So uh -huh. early uh, this fall, she said, like, I think it's time. She saw an angle where it looked like I had no hair. And so we decided to make it the grand prize of a youth event. Uh, all, of our, all of our students had put films in, and the winners grand reveal at the end was that we pulled out razors and they got to they got oh, to nice. shave my head oh man made it have like multi you you multi-leveraged that exactly Way to go. <laughs> well nathan i know i think i can speak for so many we're so glad you're part of our team love the way you love our youth and the way you're leading them i know it's been an unusual experience to be part of covid let alone let that be your first experience but just seeing how god is in you and working through you and yeah, bless you as you share with us from his word today. Thank you. I have a tendency to love really obscure passages embedded like deep into the prophets, but also know that Isaiah 30, 15, I don't like just because it's obscure, but also when I showed it to Sarah as we were starting this series, she's like, Nathan, like 
This is literally you. This verse is you. So I chose it. Isaiah 30, 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now, beforehand, I told our team that this would be my most practical message maybe ever, which is saying something, because I'm usually like a pretty theoretical, abstract-minded type of guy. So I knew, like, how am I going to pull this off? I knew that the way to make this an incredibly practical message was to start with the 12th century monk, Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard wrote something called the Four Degrees of Love, essentially tracking a measurement of spiritual maturity into Christ-likeness. So first degree, number one, you love yourself for your own sake. This would be the basic starting point. But maybe one day you would move to love of God, but still doing it for your own sake. After that, loving God, this time for his sake. And then the last one, which is mind-bending to me, but also apparently mind-bending to Bernard. He says this about it. Let any who have attained so far bear record. I confess it seems beyond my powers. It's love of self for the sake of God. I think it's something that he would understand is only done post-resurrection. It's an experience of union with Jesus that's so significant, it becomes hard to distinguish whether or not we are loving ourselves or loving God. Anyways, the point of all this is that Bernard tracks spiritual maturity by moving from anthropocentrism to theocentrism. That is, moving from being human-centered to being God-centered, to shift the story away from us and make it about God. This is actually how the nation of Israel was physically built. So the temple of God, where God's presence physically was on earth, was the central gathering point for the nation of Israel and was intended to be so one day for all nations of the earth. That changed in Jesus. We now, for those who are in Jesus, have the spirit within us. But the point is this centeredness, not on us, not on humanity, but on God. That's great and all. But what does it look like to do that? This is why I love Isaiah 30, 15. It is, in my eyes, practical theocentrism. How do you put God at the center? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. These are four tools to place God at the center of our lives. In repentance, we come in humility, perhaps sorrow, and confession of sin to ask for forgiveness from God. In rest, we acknowledge that our greatest productivity will never amount to the creator of the universe. In quietness, we solely prioritize the presence of God. And in trust, we acknowledge that God's contributions are infinitely greater than our own. So today, we are just going to work through what it looks like to move to theocentrism through repentance, rest, quietness, and trust. So first, repentance. Repentance is always viewed positively throughout Scripture. I often, at camps or with students, describe repentance by walking across the stage, but today you'll get to use my, see my little finger legs across my arm. This is the act of repentance. You're walking this way, you stop, you turn, 
and you go the other way. Now, if you missed it, you blinked or something, let me do it for you again. You're walking this way, follow the little finger legs. You turn, it's right there, that, that right there, that's the act, and then you go the other way. Repentance is a turning of heart. It's a turning of mind. It's a turning of our very lives away from what we have been doing and towards Jesus. It's always the positive thing to do in Scripture. Culturally, it doesn't always feel that way. And I think there's two reasons, two primary reasons I see for that. One, we have really privatized the way that we think about repentance. So our primary way of thinking about what it looks like to come Jesus is to personally ask Jesus into our hearts, which is true. And that's not an issue in and of itself, but there's not a very public recognition and not a visible, tangible, concrete understanding of what repentance looks like. And perhaps the reason for that is actually the second thing is culturally, we, uh, we don't really like to engage and to think about our own sinfulness. Contrast that with the 16th century monk. We have a thing with monks, apparently. 16th century monks, monk, Ignatius of Loyola, who every day would pray that God would help him to know his sin. Now, I just want to say this. In quoting and referencing Ignatius, I am not endorsing everything that he would say. Ignatius was a practicing Catholic in the 16th century when there was a growing division between the Catholic Church and what was the Protestant Church. The Western Church was splitting into two, and our stream that we as Mennonite brethren come out of is in this Protestant stream. So I humbly acknowledge that there are disagreements between me and Ignatius, but for two reasons I think we would still be okay to learn from him. One, I know that one day I will stand before the living God and have many things that I believe to be true revealed to be wrong. And secondly, I still just love the way that Ignatius pushes us into something that I don't know that I would naturally see otherwise. See, my tendency when it comes to sin would be to say that, God, would you help remove my shame or help remove the things that I experience because of sin? Ignatius, on the other hand, says, God, help me to know my sin, increase my self-awareness. He leans into his understanding of sin so that he can be driven by repentance. This is the space that I believe is true throughout Scripture and also true for what I've wanted to see in my own life, not to be someone who runs from sin. Well, sorry, <laughs> To be clear, I do want to run from sin, but who does not run from my own sin and try and hide it away, but who acknowledges it and confesses it before God and ultimately before others. So out of this, when I was inspired by hearing the story of Ignatius, I remember sitting in the hot tub at the, the suite that I was living in at the time and just asking God, reveal my sin to me. And things would come up and I'd sit with it and I'd be like, not trying to move away. And then I'd ask God, what else? And I'd sit with that, and I'd ask God, okay, what else? Okay, God, what else? So things with greed, pride, envy, lust, et cetera, the sloth, the list goes on. I left the hot tub, and I journaled all those things down, just created a list, an inventory of things that at that time I knew to be, to be sinful within my life. And this was the part that was hardest afterwards. As hard as all that was, I took that list, and I went to Wes, who was my roommate at that time, and knocked on his door and opened it and read it out, and I read everything that I was aware of that God had revealed to me regarding my own sin. 
I want to tell you about the transformation that I experienced, the release of the burden in doing that moment, the friendship that was forged between me and Wes, and the inspiration that we both felt and empowered to say, we want to be cleansed from sin. See, repentance, in this act of turning away, repentance strips us from everything that is not from God. So we continue to pursue repentance so that we can move to being centered around us, to being centered around God. Secondly, rest. Rest is also something that's been pretty important in my life. A couple years ago, I was invited to speak back at Briarcrest, where I was, had just graduated from. And when I got there, I'd been allowed to speak on whatever I wanted. I talked to one of my friends, Josiah. And Josiah told me that he went to the chaplain and said, hey, like, I hear Nathan's coming back to speak. Like, what's he speaking on? And, and the chaplain said, well, I gave him any topic he wanted, any passage he wanted. What do you, what do you think Nathan shows? And Josiah was like, oh well, I guess we're going to hear something about rest or Sabbath or something along those lines. And sure enough, Josiah was right. I was there to talk about the creational rhythm of Sabbath that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. This is something that I see as important, not because it comes naturally to me, but partially because I see the importance we put in Scripture, or we see in Scripture, and the lack of importance we put on it culturally. So today... We would exalt the overworkers and then forget about them when they burn out. We love productivity. We love the high-level corporate executive who puts in the long hours. We highly value the influencer, the teenage influencer, whose entire life is built around performing and creating content and providing no space for themselves. This is the type of life that we admire and respect, the discipline and the hard work. I often hear people use this type of language. They'll, they'll, they'll sometimes say to me, Nathan, like, the devil never rests, so we can't. Like, we have to keep putting at it. And to that I say, yeah, he's the devil. <laughs> at what point did we start taking cues from the devil? Scripture offers a different path. And so to step into this, there's something that the Bible would talk about called Sabbath. Sabbath is something that Sarah and I have started to practice, but I want to be really clear. Sabbath is originally an Old Testament concept. So every seven days, you would take a rest from work. And it also, additionally, every seven years, you would not farm the land to allow the land to have rest and also to allow people who are poor to come in and actually pick the food from the land. And it was just this Sabbath rest rhythm. But here's the different piece that we would see today post-Jesus. Whereas in the Old Testament, the law was prescribing the avenue to life. What we see in Jesus is that he, as the giver of life, empowers us to be who we were created to be. It's a subtle but significant shift. So Sarah and I have kind of stumbled into a Sabbath rhythm. Every single Friday, we sleep in, we wake up, and we make brunch. It's always peanut butter pancakes, hash hash browns, and bacon every single time. Maybe if we're really splurging, we'll throw in some orange juice. Then we go into the afternoon, we'll read books, we will nap, we'll go on a hike, we'll do something we love. And then in the evening, we order pizza and we watch a movie. And that's every Friday. Boy, is it great. Boy, do I love it. But I think there's something else that I learned was missing from it. 
So Steve Wilkins, he's an author. He wrote a book with a few others called Christian Ethics, Four Views. And they're exploring what is, the, what is the ethical vision? What are the options of morals that Jesus could give to us? And they have a specific section that talks about utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is essentially doing something because we think it is helpful or beneficial. So for example, I think of my Friday Sabbath rhythm. I love it because of how restful it makes me feel. Like I, at this point, use my Fridays to get to like Monday, Tuesday. And the fact that I know Friday's coming gets me back through the rest of the week. It's incredibly restful for me. But it still seems like it's centered on me. Steve Wilkins, in this book, they say essentially that utilitarianism, to do something because of what we get out of it or what is effective, is literally not a Christian view. It's not an, it's not an option. It's too anthropocentric. We need a theocentric vision of rest. We need to be pushed to say this is about Jesus and what he has to offer. I think quietness is one of the ways in which we do that, perhaps even the primary way. See, what quietness is, is the positioning of our hearts. Quietness positions us to hear the voice of God. Again, another piece that has become hugely influential in my life, and it started my second year of Briarcrest. I had just finished, finished playing basketball for Rod, who is now my executive pastor, my boss, and I just thought, I have all the time in the world. So that year I decided to join the worship team, to be an RA in my hall, to work for a professor, to be a tutorial leader for a group of students, and ultimately to run for and be elected as student body president. I remember days where I would leave my room at 7 in the morning and get back in my room at 10 o'clock at night and just go straight, except for like little 15-minute pockets. And like mostly built out of survival, it's like I just need something to like slow down. So I would come into my room for these 15 minute pockets, lie down on my bed as if I'm like sitting in a coffin and then like play this ambient music and just like try and breathe slowly and meditate on scripture. Oftentimes it was Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Honestly, I think that got me through the year. And that started to drive a desire of mine to see silence and solitude and quietness in particular be a crucial part of my life. By quietness, I simply mean that place and that pace where we can hear the voice of God. And if what I just told you sounds incredibly kooky, this lying on my bed like I'm in a coffin, this ambient music, it doesn't have to look like that. I know I'm a more contemplative person. I tend to think in these weird ways. I said that at the beginning, abstract. I like this silence and solitude thing. But it doesn't always have to look that way. Anything, that place or that pace where we can hear the voice of God, certainly it involves sitting down to read scripture, to engage with the word of God. It certainly involves prayer. It involves fasting. It involves meditating on scripture. It also shouldn't always be incredibly contemplative and incredibly focused on ourselves. Once again, we don't want it to be anthropocentric. We want it to be theocentric. So there's certainly a place where we're just like by ourselves. We might be out in nature walking. But it also needs to be places where we are actively listening to God to say, what is it that you want me to do in this environment that I'm currently in? 
So I've loved starting to go for walks around the city of Abbotsford and to just start having conversations with someone that I passed, like Rose, who I really tried to get away from. Like she was asking for help with figuring out a bus stop thing and I did not want to help her. And so I like kept walking and for like probably I was 20 feet away from her and she's still calling my name. And like this entire time God's saying like, stop Nathan, stop Nathan, stop Nathan, stop Nathan. And I probably would have just kept going except also Rose was like yelling at me I didn't, she's not saying stop Nathan, stop Nathan. She didn't know my name, but probably would have said something like that. So begrudgingly, I stop and I start to talk to Rose and I help her out. She realizes she has some time to kill before the bus comes. And I'm trying to get to a meeting that I have at Starbucks, but what originally was a five minute walk turned into a 30 minute walk because I learned that she has varicose veins and we're walking really slowly. And she tells me about how she immigrated from Hungary in 1988 because of religious persecution. But sadly, even though they gave up everything, they, they were heartbroken when the next year the persecution stopped, but they had already given everything up. And so they're trying to figure out what it looks like to live in Canada. And during this walk, I'm able to sit with her and to pray with her. See, quietness is definitely those individual spaces where we are shaped by God, but it's also the spaces where we are used by God as we listen to what he's saying to us. It can look like riding your motorcycle. It can look like whatever it is to position ourselves to recognize God's voice. I love this quote from a pastor in New York, John Tyson, where he says, you might not be too sinful for God to use you, but you might be too busy. See, in quietness, we actually slow down our lives so that we can be shaped by God and be used by God. Repentance, rest, quietness, and all of this pushes us to trust all three of those things, which is ultimately where we acknowledge that God's contributions are infinitely greater than our own. Now, lastly, as we close, I just want to acknowledge, like, part of this series is that we have been using individual verses and trying to say, much as these verses are important, there's a greater context. I haven't even given you the entire verse. Hear the whole verse here. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Isaiah 30 is actually a rebuke from the Lord on the nation of Israel for the way over centuries, despite his redeeming work, his continued presence in their lives, they continue to act in rebellion and to reject him. He says, I laid it out for you. Ah, I think that's often the story in my life. It's laid out, repentance, rest, quietness, trust. But I would just choose another path. So here again in this rebuke, it's an invitation because here a, a few verses down in Isaiah 30, verse 18, Hear God's word still. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Would this be an invitation that pushes us, one, to acknowledge the ways in which perhaps we have not followed the like, simple path forward to move from anthropocentrism to theocentrism, to move from the story of being about us to being about God, but recognize that it's ultimately this beautiful invitation to, at the bare minimum, not even, sorry, not the bare minimum, at like the most basic level, to be exactly who God's created us to be. I want to close with Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Psalm 23, a psalm which is capturing the theocentric life, the life that is anchored solely in God. 
and then we'll finish. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows, and you find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six-course dinner, come on, right in front of my enemies. You revive my drooping head. My cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. May this be our story.